Chapter 17 The Ramadan As Queequeg's Ramadan, or fasting and humiliation, was to continue all day, I did not choose to disturb him till towards nightfall, for I cherished the greatest respect towards everybody's religious obligations, never mind how comical, and could not find it in my heart to undervalue even a congregation of ants worshipping a toadstool, or those other creatures in certain parts of our earth who with a degree of footmanism, quite unprecedented in other planets, bow down before the torso of a deceased land proprietor merely on account of the inordinate possessions yet owned and rented in his name. I say we good Presbyterian Christians should be charitable in these things and not fancy ourselves so vastly superior to other mortals, pagans, and what not, because of their half-crazy conceits on these subjects. There was Queequeg, now, certainly entertaining the most absurd notions about Yojo and his Ramadan. But what of that? Queequeg thought he knew what he was about, I suppose. He seemed to be content, and there let him rest. All our arguing with him would not avail. Let him be, I say. And heaven have mercy on all of us, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. Towards evening, when I felt assured that all his performances and rituals must be over, I went up to his room and knocked at the door, but no answer. I tried to open it, but it was fastened inside. Queequeg, said I, softly through the keyhole, all silent. I say, Queequeg, why don't you speak? It's I, Ishmael. But all remained still as before. I began to grow alarmed. I had allowed him such abundant time, I thought he might have had an apoplectic fit. I looked through the keyhole, but the door opening into an odd corner of the room, the keyhole prospect was but a crooked and sinister one. I could only see part of the footboard of the bed, and a line of the wall, but nothing more. I was surprised to behold, resting upon the wall, the wooden shaft of Queequeg's harpoon, which the landlady the evening previous had taken from him, before mounting to the chamber. That's strange, thought I. But at any rate, since the harpoon stands yonder, and he seldom or never goes abroad without it, therefore he must be inside here, and no possible mistake. Queequeg, Queequeg. All still. Something must have happened. Apoplexy. I tried to burst open the door, but it stubbornly resisted. Running downstairs, I quickly stated my suspicions to the first person I met, the chambermaid. La, la, she cried. I thought something must be the matter. I went to make the bed after breakfast, and the door was locked, and not a mouse to be heard, and it's been just so silent ever since. But I thought, maybe, you had both gone off and locked your baggage in for safekeeping. La, ma'am, mistress, murder, Mrs. Hussey, apoplexy. And with these cries she ran towards the kitchen, I following. Mrs. Hussey soon appeared, with a mustard pot in one hand and a vinegar cruet in the other, having just broken away from the occupation of attending to the casters. Woodhouse, cried I, which way to it? Run, for God's sake, and fetch something to pry open the door. 
The axe, the axe, he's had a stroke, depend upon it. And so saying, I was unmethodically rushing upstairs again empty-handed, when Mrs. Hussey interposed the mustard pot and vinegar cruet and the entire caster of her countenance. What's the matter with you, young man? Get the axe, for God's sake, run for the doctor, someone, while I pry it open. Look here, said the landlady, quickly putting down the vinegar, so as to have one hand free. Look here, are you talking about prying open any of my doors? And with that, she seized my arm. What's the matter with you? What's the matter with you, shipmate? In as calm but rapid a manner as possible, I gave her to understand the whole case. Unconsciously clapping the vinegar to one side of her nose, she ruminated for an instant, then exclaimed, No, I haven't seen it since I put it there. Running to a little closet under the landing of the stairs, she glanced in, and returning, told me that Queequeg's harpoon was missing. He's killed himself, she cried. It's unfortunate Stig's done over again. There goes another counterpane. God pity his poor mother. It will be the ruin of my house. Has the poor lad a sister? Where's that girl? There. Betty, go to Snarls the painter and tell him to paint me a sign with no suicides permitted here and no smoking in the parlor. Might as well kill both birds at once. Kill. The Lord be merciful to his ghost. What's that noise there? You, young man, avast there. And running up after me, she caught me as I was again trying to force open the door. I don't allow it. I won't have my premises spoiled. Go for the locksmith. There's one about a mile from here. But avast. Putting her hand in her side pocket. Here's a key that'll fit, I guess. Let's see. And with that, she turned it in the lock. But alas... Queequeg's supplemental bolt remained unwithdrawn within. "'Have to burst it open,' said I, and was running down the entry a little, for a good start, when the landlady caught at me, again vowing I should not break down her premises. But I tore from her, and with a sudden bodily rush dashed myself full against the mark. With a prodigious noise, The door flew open, and the knob, slamming against the wall, sent the plaster to the ceiling. And there, good heavens, there sat Queequeg, altogether cool and self-collected, right in the middle of the room, squatting on his hams and holding Yojo on top of his head. He looked neither one way nor the other, but sat like a carved image with scarce a sign of active life. Queequeg, said I, going up to him, Queequeg, what's the matter with you? He ain't been sitting so all day, has he? said the landlady. But all we said, not a word could we drag out of him. I almost felt like pushing him over so as to change his position, for it was almost intolerable. It seemed so painfully and unnaturally constrained, especially as in all probability he had been sitting so for upwards of eight or ten hours, going to without his regular meals. "'Mrs. Hussey,' said I, "'he's alive, at all events. "'So leave us, if you please, "'and I will see to this strange affair myself.' "'Closing the door upon the landlady, "'I endeavored to prevail upon Queequeg to take a chair, "'but in vain. 
very sad, and all he could do, for all my polite arts and blandishments, he would not move a peg, nor say a single word, nor even look at me, nor notice my presence in the slightest way. I wonder, thought I, if this can possibly be a part of his Ramadan. Do they fast on their hams that way in his native land? It must be so, yes. It's part of his creed, I suppose. Well, then, let him rest. He'll get up sooner or later, no doubt. It can't last forever, thank God. And his Ramadan only comes once a year, and I don't believe it's very punctual then. I went down to supper. After sitting a long time listening to the long stories of some sailors who had just come from a plum-pudding voyage, as they called it, that is, a short whaling voyage in a schooner or brig confined to the north of the line in the Atlantic Ocean only. After listening to these plum-puddingers till nearly eleven o'clock, I went upstairs to go to bed, feeling quite sure by this time Queequeg must certainly have brought his Ramadan to a termination. But no... There he was, just where I had left him. He had not stirred an inch. I began to grow vexed with him. It seemed so downright senseless and insane to be sitting there all day and half the night on his hams, in a cold room, holding a piece of wood on his head. For heaven's sake, Queequeg, get up and shake yourself. Get up and have some supper. You'll starve. You'll kill yourself, Queequeg. But not a word did he reply. Despairing of him, therefore, I determined to go to bed and to sleep, and no doubt before a great while he would follow me. But previous to turning in, I took my heavy bearskin jacket and threw it over him, as it promised to be a very cold night, and he had nothing but his ordinary round jacket on. For some time, do all I would, I could not get into the faintest doze. I had blown out the candle, and the mere thought of Queequeg, not four feet off, "'sitting there in that uneasy position, stark alone, in the cold and dark. "'This made me really wretched. "'Think of it, sleeping all night in the same room "'with a wide-awake pagan on his hams "'in this dreary, unaccountable Ramadan. "'But somehow I dropped off at last, "'and knew nothing more till break of day, "'when looking over the bedside, there squatted Queequeg, "'as if he'd been screwed down to the floor.' but as soon as the first glimpse of sun entered the window, up he got, with stiff and grating joints, but with a cheerful look, limped towards me where I lay, pressed his forehead again against mine, and said his Ramadan was over. Now, as I before hinted, I have no objection to any person's religion, be it what it may, so long as that person does not kill or insult any other person, because that other person don't believe it also. But when a man's religion becomes really frantic, when it is a positive torment to him, and, in fine, makes this earth of ours an uncomfortable inn to lodge in, then I think it high time to take that individual aside and argue the point with him. And just so I now did with Queequeg. Queequeg, said I, get into bed now and lie and listen to me. I then went on, beginning with the rise and progress of the primitive religions, and coming down to the various religions of the present time, 
during which time I labored to show Queequeg that all these Lents, Ramadans, and prolonged ham-squattings in cold, cheerless rooms were stark nonsense, bad for the health, unless for the soul, opposed, in short, to the obvious laws of hygiene and common sense. I told him, too, he being such an extremely sensible man, it pained me, very badly pained me, to see him now so deplorably foolish about this ridiculous Ramadan of his. Besides, argued I, fasting makes the body cave in, hence the spirit caves in, and all thoughts born of a fast must necessarily be half-starved. This is the reason why most dyspeptic religionists cherish such melancholy notions about their hereafters. In one word, Queequeg, said I, rather digressively, Hell is an idea first born on an undigested apple dumpling, and since then perpetuated through the hereditary dyspepsias nurtured by Ramadans. I then asked Queequeg whether he himself was ever troubled with dyspepsia, expressing the idea very plainly so that he could take it in. He said no, only upon one memorable occasion. It was after a great feast given by his father the king, on the gaining of a great battle wherein fifty of the enemy had been killed by about two o'clock in the afternoon, and all cooked and eaten that very evening. No more, Queequeg, said I, shuddering. That will do. For I knew the inferences without his further hinting them. I had seen a sailor who had visited that very island, and he told me that it was the custom, when a great battle had been gained there, to barbecue all the slain in the yard or garden of the victor. And then, one by one, they were placed in great wooden trenchers and garnished round like a pilau with breadfruit and coconuts, and with some parsley in their mouths, were sent round with the victor's compliments to all his friends, just as though these presents were so many Christmas turkeys. After all, I do not think that my remarks about religion made such impression upon Queequeg, because in the first place he somehow seemed dull of hearing on that important subject, unless considered from his own point of view. And in the second place he did not more than one-third understand me, couch my ideas simply as I would. And finally he no doubt thought he knew a good deal more about the true religion than I did. He looked at me with a sort of condescending concern and compassion, as though he thought it a great pity that such a sensible young man should be so hopelessly lost to evangelical pagan piety. At last we rose and dressed, and Queequeg, taking a prodigiously hearty breakfast of chowders of all sorts, so that the landlady should not make much profit by reason of his Ramadan, we sallied out to board the Pequod, sauntering along and picking our teeth with halibut bones. Chapter 18. His Mark As we were walking down the end of the wharf towards the ship, Queequeg, carrying his harpoon, Captain Peleg, in his gruff voice, loudly hailed us from his wigwam, saying he had not suspected my friend was a cannibal, and furthermore announcing that he let no cannibals on board that craft unless they previously produced their papers. "'What do you mean by that, Captain Peleg?' said I, now jumping on the bulwarks and leaving my comrade standing on the wharf. "'I mean,' he replied, "'he must show his papers.' "'Yes,' 
said Captain Bildad in his hollow voice, sticking his head from behind Peleg's out of the wigwam. He must show that he's converted. Son of darkness, he added, turning to Queequeg, art thou at present in communion with any Christian church? Why, said I, he's a member of the first congregational church. Here be it said that many tattooed savages sailing in Nantucket ships at last come to be converted into the churches. First congregational church, cried Bildad. What? That worships in Deacon Deuteronomy Coleman's meeting house. And so saying, taking out his spectacles, he rubbed them with his great yellow bandana handkerchief, and putting them on very carefully, came out of the wigwam, and leaning stiffly over the bulwarks, took a good long look at Queequeg. How long hath he been a member? he then said, turning to me. Not very long, I rather guess, young man. No, said Peleg, and he hasn't been baptized right, either, or it would have washed some of that devil's blue off his face. Do tell now, cried Bildad. Is this Philistine a regular member of Deacon Deuteronomy's meeting? I never saw him going there, and I pass it every Lord's day. I don't know anything about Deacon Deuteronomy or his meeting, said I. All I know is that Queequeg here is a born member of the First Congregational Church. He is a deacon himself, Queequeg is. Young man, said Bildad sternly, thou art skylarking with me. Explain thyself. What church dost thou mean? Answer me. Finding myself thus hard pushed, I replied, I mean, sir, the same ancient Catholic church to which you and I, and Captain Peleg there, and Queequeg here, and all of us, and every mother's son and soul of us belong, the great and everlasting first congregation of this whole worshipping world. We all belong to that. Only some of us cherish some queer crochets no ways touching the grand belief. In that, we all join hands. Splice! Thou meanst splice hands, cried Peleg, drawing nearer. Young man, you'd better ship for a missionary instead of a foremast hand. I never heard a better sermon. Deacon Deuteronomy, why Father Mapple himself couldn't beat it, and he's reckoned something. Come aboard, come aboard. Never mind about the papers. I say, tell Cohog there. What's that you call him? Tell Cohog to step along. By the great anchor, what a harpoon he's got there. Looks like good stuff, that. And he handles it about right. I say, Cohog, or whatever your name is, did you ever stand in the head of a whaleboat? Did you ever strike a fish? Without saying a word, Queequeg, in his wild sort of way, jumped upon the bulwarks, from thence into the bows of one of the whaleboats, hanging to the side, and then, bracing his left knee and poising his harpoon, cried out in some such way as this. Captain, you see him small drop on the water there. You see him. Well, suppose him one whale eye. Well, then. And taking sharp aim at it, he darted the iron right over old Bildad's broad brim clean across the ship's decks and struck the glistening tar spot out of sight. Now, said Queequeg, quietly hauling in the line, Suppose him the whale eye. Why, that whale's dead. 
quick, Bildad, cried Peleg, his partner, who, aghast at the close vicinity of the flying harpoon, had retreated towards the cabin gangway. Quick, I say you, Bildad, and get the ship's papers. We must have hedgehog there. I mean, Quahog, in one of our boats. Look ye, Quahog, we'll give you the ninetieth lay, and that's more than ever was given a harpooner yet out of Nantucket. So down we went into the cabin, and to my great joy Queequeg was soon enrolled among the same ship's company to which I myself belonged. When all preliminaries were over and Peleg had got everything ready for signing, he turned to me and said, "'I guess Quahog there don't know how to write, does he? "'I say, Quahog, blast ye, dost thou sign thy name or make thy mark?' "'But at this question, Queequeg, who had twice or thrice before taken part in similar ceremonies, "'looked no ways abashed, but taking the offered pen, copied upon the paper in the proper place "'an exact counterpart of a queer round figure which was tattooed upon his arm.' so that through Captain Peleg's obstinate mistake touching his appellative, it stood something like this. Quahog, his X-mark. Meanwhile, Captain Bildad sat earnestly and steadfastly eyeing Queequeg, and at last, rising solemnly and fumbling in the huge pockets of his broad-skirted drab coat, took out a bundle of tracks, and selecting one entitled The Latter Day Coming or No Time to Lose, placed it in Queequeg's hands, and then, grasping them and the book with both his, looked earnestly into his eyes and said, "'Son of darkness, I must do my duty by thee. I am part owner of this ship, and feel concerned for the souls of all its crew. If thou still clingest to thy pagan ways, which I sadly fear, I beseech thee, remain not for I a Belial bondsman. Spurn the idle bell and the hideous dragon.' Turn from the wrath to come. Mind thine eye, I say. Oh, goodness gracious, steer clear of the fiery pit. Something of the salt sea yet lingered in old Bildad's language, heterogeneously mixed with scriptural and domestic phrases. Avast there, avast there, Bildad, avast now spoiling our harpooner, cried Peleg. Pious harpooners never make good voyagers. It takes the shark out of them. No harpooner is worth a straw who ain't pretty sharkish. There was young Nat Swain, once the bravest boat had her out of all Nantucket in the vineyard. He joined the meeting and never came to good. He got so frightened about his soul that he shrinked and sheared away from whales for fear of afterclaps in case he got stove and went to Davy Jones. Peleg, Peleg, cried Bildad, lifting his eyes and hands. Thou thyself, as I myself, have seen many a perilous time. Thou knowest, Peleg, what it is to have the fear of death. How, then, canst thou pray in this ungodly guise? Thou beliest thy own heart, Peleg. Tell me, when the same Pequod here had her three masts overboard in that typhoon on Japan, that same voyage when thou went mate with Captain Ahab, didst thou not think of death and the judgment then? "'Hear him, hear him now,' cried Peleg, marching across the cabin, "'and thrusting his hands far down into his pockets. "'Hear him, all of ye. Think of that. "'When every moment we thought the ship would sink. "'Death and the judgment then. "'What? 
with all three masts making such an everlasting thundering against the side, and every sea breaking over us fore and aft. Think of death and the judgment then? No, no time to think about death then. Life was what Captain Ahab and I was thinking of, and how to save all hands, how to rig jury masts, how to get into the nearest port. That's what I was thinking of. Bildad said no more, but buttoning up his coat, stalked on deck where we followed him. There he stood, very quietly overlooking some sailmakers who were mending a topsail in the waist. Now and then he stooped to pick up a patch or save an end of tarred twine, which otherwise might have been wasted. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.